I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. Monday, everyone, and a, a happy birthday to Saga's very own Mike Carafalitis, of course, the voice of the Mississauga Steelheads on the road, and also he does yeoman's duty as our traffic reporter. Say, are you uh, ready to do battle for another week? And for most of us, doing battle simply means going to work, providing for our families, maybe helping the kids with their homework. But it also means engaging in the battle of our lifetime, and that's battling the Marxists in our midst who have infiltrated every cultural and government institution, not only in Ontario, but Canada and indeed the rest of the Western world. And if you can't fight them, help the fighters however you can. I mentioned helping your kids with their homework. I want you to remember you are their best teacher. And if you're at all able, I highly recommend you extract, rescue your children from their public school and homeschool them. 
or join together with a group of like-minded parents. Pool your resources. Maybe even rent out a church basement once a week and hire a couple of teachers to teach those subjects you're not comfortable with or, or equipped to teach, like math or science or subjects that are part of a classical education like logic and Latin. And there are plenty of out-of-work teachers who were fired because they refused the COVID jab or they were fired because they spoke the truth. Remember Jim McMurtry? A teacher of four decades fired from his teaching position in Abbotsford, British Columbia for simply speaking the truth about residential schools. That truth is simply that almost all of the indigenous children who tragically died while in residential schools in this country died from tuberculosis and smallpox and influenza. And that there is zero evidence that even one indigenous student was murdered by priests or nuns and buried in unmarked graves. He's still looking for work. I believe uh, Ruth Gaskowski, a former contributor to this program, the homeschooling mentor, uh, still has a portal on her website. Connecting homeschool co-ops, groups of parents. And out of work qualified teachers who are looking for teaching positions. Humanitasfamily.net. Humanitasfamily.net. I bring this all up because once again, the teachers unions are getting ready to walk off the job. The Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario is uh, holding in-person strike votes for its members starting today. And um, teachers in various regions will be voting on different days. The first meetings and votes were uh, set again for today for teachers in the Ottawa, Carleton and Upper Grand School Boards. ETFO President Karen Brown said if members vote in favor of a strike, it doesn't necessarily mean teachers will walk off the job. She says a strong strike vote result will help ETFO communicate to the Ford government that they must get serious about bargaining. She said, while we are now working with a conciliator uh, to help us explore all possible options in reaching agreements that are fair for EFTO members, for ETFO members, central strike votes are another tool we can help us to achieve the best working conditions and learning conditions possible. It is to laugh. Since the union filed for conciliation last month, there has been some movement on key issues at, <clears throat> at the bargaining table, Brown said. ETFO has rejected a government proposal to use binding arbitration in order to get a deal, something the union representing public high school teachers has tentatively accepted. The uh, Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation tentatively agreed to negotiate with the government until the end of October and then move to binding arbitration, which would eliminate the possibility of a strike. But its largest teacher bargaining unit is not in favor. And members have until September the 27th to vote on whether to move forward with that bargaining path. Education Minister Stephen Leachy has urged the other teachers unions to accept the same deal, but they have said no. Ontario English Catholic Teachers Association, another union holding uh, a strike vote October 18th and 19th. In other words, looks like a perfect storm. After the schools were closed during much of 2021 due to unscientific provincial COVID mandates. And uh, keep in mind, the unions were all in favor And we now know 
What an unmitigated disaster that was. Totally unnecessary. It set your child's education back. Now the unions are threatening to close the schools again. And then they have the temerity to take out ads and try to tell us that these strikes are about the students. These strikes are never about the students. The unions lie. They lie to us boldly to our face and tell us that Doug Ford is cutting education. That is demonstrably false. And I'm no fan of Doug Ford, as you know. I think his radical progressive provincial government has been a disaster. They're further left than Dalton McGinty and his liberals. On par with wacky, reckless, radical Kathleen Wynne. But Doug Ford has not cut education. He has increased spending in education. We spend more per child in this province than just about anywhere else in Canada. And what do we have to show for it? Our students are falling behind in reading, writing, and math. Where does the money go? It goes into administration and teachers' salaries and into the union coffers and into their teachers' pension fund. That pension fund is enormous, almost unimaginable. And that money gets plowed into, well, at one time, of course, they own part of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Shopping malls, large manufacturing companies, a steel company in Hamilton. Back in the 90s, the late 90s, the Ontario Pension Fund, the Teachers Pension Fund, purchased commercial property owner Cadillac Fairview for $2.3 billion. The teachers unions, along with the property developers, run this province. And it's time to bring down the teachers unions. It's time to pull your children out of public school and homeschool them or demand school choice so that you can choose where your child goes to school. And the $14,000 we spend per child in funding should follow the student. You should direct where that money goes. More private schools, more, well, we need to demand charter schools. Do away with the school boards and put an end to teachers' unions. The teachers' unions, working in concert with the woke school boards, are indoctrinating your children with Marxist ideology. It's a dangerous ideology. It is a ruinous ideology. And that's just one battle line in this war against woke. On a Wednesday, there'll be the One Million March for Children with demonstrations taking place across the country. Parents will be pulling their kids out of school and assembling at city halls and legislature buildings to show that the sexualization of children is unacceptable. This is taking place with the approval of the school boards and the teachers unions. This is what they stand for. So there's another battle you can get involved in. There is much to do, ladies and gentlemen, much to do. No shortage of hills to die on. Pick one and join the fight. Kenny Hsu has been on the front lines in the United States fighting wokeness, including DEI, what I call discrimination, exclusion, and indoctrination in the United States. He fought the racist student admission policies at Ivy League colleges in the U.S. that discriminate against Asian students, Asian American students. That fight ended up in the Supreme Court, and the court ended racial quotas in favor of meritocracy. 
That's a huge W. And now Kenny Shu, the author of School of Woke, How Critical Race Theory Infiltrated American Schools and Why We Must Reclaim Them, will be here last order of business in hour two. He's running for Congress. Our new morning man here at Saga 960 AM, Randy Taylor, will be here in hour two to tell us what's happening on his show this week. He'll let us know what's top of mind. Also this hour... A professor at Wilfrid Laurier University will explain how Ontario teachers pick on white children. This hour, the Anti-Woke Book Club with James Pugh. Open lines this hour. You can get on board right now. In fact, the lines are open at 289-275-9600, 289-275-9600. But first, don't look now. But the lamestream newspapers want more of your money. Tom Korski from Blacklock's Reporter is next. The Richard Serrett Show, off and running for Monday, September the 18th, in the year of our Lord, 2023. Facta non verba. We're back as The Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up in about, uh, oh, what is it, 20 minutes, I guess. Open lines. In fact, uh, we've made the phone lines available to you right now. You can get on board. Get on early. 289. Avoid the holiday rush. 289-275-9600. 289-275-9600. And um, time permitting during open lines, I'll also tell you, about a case of euthanasia in Belgium that went horribly, horribly wrong. Maybe a little bit of foreshadowing as to what could happen here with our horrific medical assistance and dying policy that we have. All right. That uh, temporary bailout for the uh, lamestream newspapers in this country <laughs> starting to sound, starting to look like it's not temporary and more salt in your wounds. Now they're asking for more. They're asking for more. Tom Korski, managing editor at Black Locks Reporter, is with us. Hey, Tom, how are you? I'm well, thank you, Richard. So now they're getting $600 million. It was supposed to be temporary. The, uh, the newspaper lobbyists asked for, for an extension on that, uh, but the, even that's not enough. Now they're coming cap in hand again. How much more are they asking for? It's unbelievable, really. The current rebate, it's, they get a payroll rebate. That's the largest charge. The current rebate, I mean, name a business that wouldn't like this. The current rebate is about $14,000 per newsroom employee per year. $13,750. Let's round it to make it straightforward. $14,000 a year rebate. The newspaper lobby in a submission to the Commons Finance Committee said, not good enough. We would like $30,000 a year per newsroom employee until we say we've had enough. $29,750, $30,000 for every man and woman working in a newsroom that is deemed a journalist, I'm using air quotes, by the government of Canada. It's unbelievable. Until we say we've had enough. Well, as a taxpayer, I've had enough. Uh, $30,000 per employee. Um for these lamestream newspapers. And um, I mean, do we know, like, for example, on average, how many employees do these 
uh, newspapers have on average, whether we're talking about the Toronto Star or, or whatever. I mean, 100, 200? Few, fewer, fewer all the, all the time. I, there has never been from the Department of Canadian Heritage a count of how many employees are actually drawing the benefit. But there, in fact, there have been so many job cuts. This program in one year was undersubscribed because you actually need a body in the newsroom to qualify for the rebate once you've applied to the Minister of Revenue and you promise to be a good boy. Then you get the $14,000. Now they want the $30,000. By the Department of Canadian Heritage's own internal memos that we've seen, they've said this has created no net new jobs. It's been a fiasco. But Richard, as you pointed out, these people have pride, but they have no shame. They cannot point to a single improvement in your local subsidized newspaper, but they will take and take and take. It's shocking. Right. And they, uh, I know the Toronto Star, they just closed a lot of their community newspapers or all of them, I guess, are retaining their regional papers. This is so rich, right? They, they're taking 30,000 or they're demanding $30,000 per journalist, as you say, in air quotes. Uh, and then they turn around and churn out drivel about how horrible Canadians are. Uh, it's, it's, it's too much. So, um, is there, is there a deadline now attached to this? Are they saying, all right, one more, you know, three or four years and then we're done? Or are they just going to kick this can down the road indefinitely? As I Oh, no. Oh, absolutely. Deadlines are out the window. This program, as you and I have discussed, by statute, by an act of parliament is due to expire next March 31st. They say, well, you're just going to make that now. And they'd promised, as you've noted, they promised it would be temporary. That was crucial. That was not in passing. They said it has to be temporary. We're going to have to save ourselves. Well, they couldn't. So they've changed their mind. Where have you heard this before? And now they don't want any deadline. They want it to be, they don't articulate it this way, Richard. Really, they want it to be like France, where the government of France, where language is all bound up in their cultural expression, and they subsidize newspapers year after year after year. Anyone who's ever heard of the uh, news agency, Agency France Presse, That's their Canadian press. It only exists because of the long-suffering taxpayers of France. Those guys would be out of business in a New York minute if it wasn't for subsidies. This is what now the News Media Canada, former Canadian Publishers Association, envisions. Perpetual increasing subsidies. Because we're so stupid, we don't know how to make money in our core business anymore. Well, that's just it, because they're blaming market conditions. Like, why don't they look in the mirror and say, uh, why is it the Canadians don't like our product? Why aren't, there, why aren't they subscribing to our newspapers? Because it's a lousy sure. product, that's why. Exactly. It's because they're losers. If you knew how to run a newsroom, you wouldn't have to apply for subsidies in the first place. But there was this was always the argument on corporate welfare that goes back 40 years. The only possible defense is job creation. You know, for years, Bombardier got sweetheart loans like no one's business. You and I have discussed the subsidies for electric car battery plants in St. Thomas, Windsor, and Brampton, over $28 billion a year. Well, what does Volkswagen say? Look at the jobs. These clowns can't even talk about jobs because they're cutting jobs left and right. You said at Toronto Star last week, there goes another 600 jobs. Do you see any improvement in the product? Who subsidizes this? You have to be out of your mind. I guess we are.
<laughs> we are. We, we really need to put an end to this. Uh, Tom, you uh, hold on. We'll come back. The uh, Canadian Anti-Hate Network says there are 6,000 of us who are crazy far-right conspiracy theorists, and only they can save us from ourselves. They want, but they need more money to do it. Sound familiar? We'll come back. Tom Korski, managing editor, Blacklocks reporter, stays with us back with more of our conversation right here on The Richard Serrett Show. Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. It's The Richard Serrett Show. Coming up in about uh, seven, eight, not nine minutes, open lines at 289-275-9600, 289-275-9600. Right now, Tom Korski, Tom Korski stays with us, managing editor, Blacklocks reporter, support independent media, black, uh, blacklocks.ca, blacklocks.ca. And uh, they don't get a subsidy. We were just talking, Tom, about the uh, newspapers wanting uh, the uh, – increase in their subsidy and now this is the uh, the word of the day i guess subsidy now we have the canadian anti-hate network uh they want a greater subsidy to keep an eye on what the subsidized media uh they claim that there are something like six thousand or six million six million conspiracy theorists in canada and they need more money to keep an eye on us tom Uh, Tell us more about the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. It's uh, really something. It's cabinet approved. Cabinet has endorsed this group's work and their personnel. They received a quarter million dollar grant to work up a website. They received a quarter million dollar grant to distribute a school guide for use in public school classrooms. Uh, They called it an anti-hate toolkit. It identified the Conservative Party by name as a target for racists, and it uh, described the old red ensign, which uh, some may recall our national symbol until 1965. They described it as a hate symbol. So you can start to see why Cabinet treats these guys as really the go-to crowd when it comes to discussing hate, or more typically, legal speech that they don't like. They've said in a submission to the Commons Finance Committee, this is frankly unbelievable, but they said it. They believe 10 to 15 percent of the population believes in conspiracy theories. 40 million Canadians, 15 percent means 6 million. 6 million Canadians are part of this vast right-wing conspiracy. They believe in these theories. They don't identify the theories and they don't identify where they get their source material. Where, Where did that figure come from? And there's only one group, doggone it, that stands between us and chaos. Mm -hmm. And you'll never guess who it is. It's the group, it's the anti-hate network, but they can't do this for nothing, Richard. This is going to cost money, and it's going to cost a million dollars a year for for five years. (laughs) Oh, we're getting sort of like (laughs) it's a bargain. It is sort of like. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. 
The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Someone has to save, as they said, someone has to save liberal democracy. They're willing to do it for $5 million. God bless them. Uh, So, again, they don't deny or they don't uh, define what they mean by a conspiracy theory. Uh, But if someone is invoking the term free speech, um, if you use the word free speech, Tom, you might be one of those conspiracy theorists. I might be one of them. I was in there. That's right. That was in one of their classroom guides. That free speech is that's a buzz phrase. Those are those are that's a dog whistle for kooks. You know, sure, it's in the Constitution, free expression, but they don't like it when other people they've you know, when you say anti-hate network, you say, well, who's going to oppose that? I mean, you mean like guys with swastikas on the tattoos on their face? No, no. They've identified people like former British Columbia Premier Bill Vanderzant. When you say conspiracy theory, crazy stuff, I, I know one they're referring to. I've seen it in internal Department of Health. Uh, memos early in the pandemic, they described as a crazy conspiracy theory, those Canadians who believe that vaccines could cause injury or death. Mm. So I, guess, I guess VAERS is... It caused, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Exactly. There are documented cases of the vaccine causing injury or death in Canada. There's been more than a thousand claims to a vaccine injury compensation fund that will pay funeral expenses was set up by cabinet, $75 million. That's not crazy. I can show you the legal notice from the government of Canada, but that's this is what these guys peddle. And so currently they're getting, um, what, about a quarter of a million dollars. Now they want... They want that up to a million dollars. Is that the idea? They need a million dollars. Well, sure. Well, sure. Because, I mean, this, you know, no one's going to save democracy on, on their own. And clearly, 40 million Canadians are incapable of it. If more than one out of 10 of us is a screw job, according to the anti-hate network. So only the tiny anti-hate network with their website can save us from ourselves. You know, uh, Richard. Of course, I'm being heavily sarcastic. I like people. I think Canadians are great. I don't think we need these people to save us from ourselves. I really don't. I think the Canadians have always solved their problems with their own two hands, and I think we can do it again. Imagine that. Imagine that. Tom Korski, Managing Editor, Blacklocks Reporter, blacklocks.ca, blacklocks.ca. Tom, great work as always. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Open lines, 289-275-9600, 289-275-9600, 289-275-9600. Back with more of The Richard Serrett Show and your calls right here on Saga 960. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. All right, welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up next, the Anti-Woke Book Club. James Pugh will be here from Woke Watch Canada. Oh, dear. Not enough mental health support for our students. Why do you suppose they might need some mental health support in our schools? Maybe because they're fed nonstop this drivel about 
the climate apocalypse that's heading our way. The world is ending. You think that might have an impact on a young child's mental health? I do. Maybe if you constantly send, uh, confuse them with a stream of nonsense about gender ideology, that might cause them some anxiety. Mental health support. Maybe stop damaging their mental health. There's a start. 289-275-9600. 289-275-9600. I was mentioning this story earlier. Belgium has a euthanasia program. We have one. It's horrific. They've uh, come under fire in Belgium again. Following news that a woman was suffocated with a pillow after the cocktail of drugs administered to her uh, failed to end her life. The uh, media outlet in Europe called Lesoir is reporting that Alexina Waterez, or Watiez, who was uh, just 36 years old, sought euthanasia after being diagnosed with terminal cancer. In 2021, her doctors informed her that she would not survive for another year. And by March of 2022, her health was deteriorating. Her uh, partner, Christoph Stulens, was there when she died along with his 15-year-old daughter, Tracy. A doctor and two nurses came to the home that the three shared to carry out the euthanasia. After a short night's sleep, I was woken up by a nurse who told me that Alexina was doing very badly, her husband said. Then the doctor took some syringes and we were asked if we, if we wanted to say goodbye. Stulens and his daughter were told to wait outside, so they went out onto the terrace. But what they thought would be a peaceful death quickly turned horrific. They heard screaming. I recognized her voice, he said. Afterwards, we saw her lying on the bed with her eyes and mouth open. An autopsy was performed and found that Wadiaz died of asphyxiation. Allegedly, the nurses took turns using a pillow to suffocate her. Alexina wanted to sleep peacefully, but apparently there were too few resources, Stulen said. The Public Prosecution Service of Liège in Belgium has now opened a murder investigation. While Stulen's is suing. A lawyer for the family said they are not looking to get money. Their goal is to demand sanctions. Or sorry, their goal is not to demand sanctions, but to provoke a debate and that this type of affair never happens again, he said. Could you imagine that your mother or your wife could end up suffocated by a cushion as part of her end of life? I don't think anyone conceive could conceive and imagine that. Another media outlet in Belgium reported, uh, or they were able to speak to someone on behalf of the doctor, who said the nurses were distraught and they called the doctor. Serge Duane said on behalf of the doctor, adding, he only injected products to relieve the patient's suffering. The incident was quickly condemned. What happened is not euthanasia, Belgian politician and Dr. Jacques Brochi told uh, the news uh, outlet, such a definition of this terrible situation devalues the gesture of euthanasia, which accompanies a person to the end without pain. The drugs used in assisted suicide are often the same used for executions, and they are frequently known to fail. Additionally, 
While the process of dying may look peaceful, in reality, there is a serious possibility of severe pain. As Dr. Joel Zavot, an associate professor of anesthesiology and surgery at the Emory School of Medicine, has previously explained, the death penalty is not the same as assisted dying, of course. Executions are meant to be punishment. Euthanasia is about relief from suffering. Yet for both euthanasia and executions, paralytic drugs are used. These drugs, given in high enough doses, mean that a patient cannot move a muscle, cannot express any outward or visible sign of pain. But that doesn't mean that he or she is uh, free from suffering. In fact, the lungs may be filled with fluid, causing the patient to essentially drown while he or she is paralyzed. Advocates of assisted dying owe a duty to the public to be truthful about the details of killing and diet. A dying, rather, as if it continued. People who want to die deserve to know that they may end up drowning, not just falling asleep. Absolutely horrific. How often do you, do you suppose something like this happens? I would say more than we know. Is it happening in Canada, perhaps? Well, if it hasn't happened, I'm guessing it probably will. Our medical assistance in dying policy is off the rails. Instead of reeling it back and taking a sober second look, maybe having an, a, a serious conversation about is this really where we want to go as a country, which we never did. They want to expand the parameters. They want to extend it to minors. They want to extend it to the mentally ill. Well, they already have extended it to the mentally ill. We know the doctors are euthanizing Patients who have no terminal physical illness, they may be suffering from depression. It's a stain on this country. This is a horrible stain on Belgium. All right, when we come back, James Pugh, independent writer with Woke Watch Canada, will be here to tell us about a book by Eric Kaufman called White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. Very provocative title. I'm sure that will get the uh, folks at the Canadian Anti-Hate Network monitoring this program. Back with more of the Richard Serrett Show right here on Saga 960. Don't go away. Back to the conversation on the Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga 960 AM. All right, welcome back. Every Monday on this program... We do a segment called the Anti-Woke Book Club. And James Pugh, independent writer, is with Woke Watch Canada. And on today's Anti-Woke Book Club, we're going to look at a book called White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities by political scientist Eric Kaufman. James, welcome back. How are you? Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. 
call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Uh, great, Richard. It's, uh, I'm glad to be back. Uh, how are you doing? Terrific. Thank you. Uh, very provocative title. White shift, populism, immigration, and the future <laughs> of white majorities. First of all, uh, Eric Kaufman, political scientist. Is he a Canadian, I believe, isn't he? He grew up in Canada. He, w- he was born in Japan. But I, I, I'm not sure if he has Canadian citizen, citizenship or not. Right now, he's a professor in the University of London, political uh, science. Okay. As I say, a very provocative uh, title, white shift. First of all, what is white shift? What does that term mean? <laughs> well, actually, chapter two of the book would probably explain it best. The, the title of the book is From Wasp to White. And what he's basically talking about is like a process that took place over more than 100 years from the 1800s and early 1900s, where the sort of dominant... Domin- uh, you're oh. cutting in and out. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, yes. Uh, so, uh, white ship. <laughs> this was a trend that took place over about 100 years? Yeah, it was the um, kind of um, the, the shift from, from people, the dominant ethnic of America being Anglo-Saxon, to then people just sort of identifying as white as uh, the Anglo-Saxon group absorbed uh, Catholics and Jewish people, but they, they kind of would just identify as just American. Right. Okay. So why is this significant? Why do you think this study is significant? Well, there, it's this, his work is tied up with a sort of national identity and the fact that white people kind of don't think that they're ethnic or they don't have ethnic validity. When they do, there's an origin story. There's a process of other groups coming and, and absorbing. And then, uh, uh, like, actually, the word is um, ethnogenesis. <laughs> so right. the, this, this birthing of kind of like a dominant ethnic in America that was more than just Anglo-Saxon people. It was other groups from the Europe that immigrated and became American, too. Um, yeah, right. so it's... <laughs> I mean, okay. there's a lot to his book. He's tracing the history of, of immigration and all of the politics that, that went along with that uh, during those times. It wasn't a smooth process at all. There was this big, long history of Protestants and Catholics hating each other and, and Jewish people, like no, nobody getting along. But then it, they all worked itself out. And so he kind of brings that uh, history into the modern moment where now we have lots of immigration, but it's not from other parts of Europe. It's from all over the world. Right. So can this white shift pro- process happen? Can the dominant sort of ethnicity or ethnic, the customs and traditions of America, can it now absorb all those other groups too? Or will diversity kind of ruin the sort of cultural particularities of America? Right. And this is actually the conversation that's kind of taboo, right? We're not supposed to talk about, about uh, you know, whites having an identity or... Um, you know, uh, ancestry and tradition. That's that's considered white supremacy in some quarters. Yeah, because this is what wokeism is. At, at its heart, wokeism is anti-whiteism. So if you think about all the statues that are from the libraries, 
there are things that are European culture and whatever, but this is these are things that are tied to people who have white skin. So <laughs> there's a war on there's an anti there's a, a, a an ascendancy of, of anti-whiteism, and that's kind of at the heart of wokeism. Boston uh, calls it left modernism. That's his term for wokeism. It's a little more meaningful. Right, right. Uh, you point out in your in your essay at Woke Watch Canada about this book uh, that there's two distinct you call them dispositions concerning ancestry and tradition. One is cosmopolitanism, and one is traditionalism. Explain the difference. Well, the traditionalists would more likely be a conservative, um, and they would they are people who when it, like when immigration is rising and their sort of cultural surroundings are changing rapidly, these people's anxiety goes up. That doesn't mean they're racist or xenophobic. It just means they want to see tempered immigration. Whereas cosmopolitans would be more likely like a leftist who they don't even notice things like that. They don't really, they don't really have any traditions. They don't have any reverence for their own culture, but they have lots of reverence for the, the world cultures. So it's kind of like a, his term is asymmetrical multiculturalism. Where we celebrate other cultures, yeah, right. asymmetrical. We celebrate other cultures, but we don't celebrate sort of the native culture. So uh, also, as you point out in his book, he talks about how then do we strike the right balance and compromise between, I guess, the cosmopolitans and the traditionalists, um, you know, so that we don't end up like France, actually, you know, that are in the middle of a lot of ethnic strife. Yeah, it is exactly that's a great uh, example. We well, there's a lot of things we have to do. We have to realize that the world is full of people who are both. Some people are cosmopolitan like, and some people are traditional like. So we have to compromise. It's it's unfair to impose a cosmopolitan worldview on everybody, just as it would be to unfair to impose a traditional world worldview on everybody. We have to really, really meet in the middle somewhere. And, you know, uh, people who are traditionalists are not against immigrants or immigration or even the concept of, of diversity, but they are against the, idea, the, the concept of the archetypal, archetypal uh, culture, like the, <laughs> the culture that's known as like archetypically American or Canadian, of that being swallowed up by diversity and completely disappearing. Right. In other words, we have to be... Uh, you know, allowed to have conversations about, uh, for example, you know, preserving certain aspects of European culture or or uh, culture from the British Isles without, you know, shouting people down as a as a white supremacist and an imperialist and a colonizer. Uh, if you have uh, ancestry and roots in the United Kingdom, it's it's got to be OK to celebrate that again. Well, yeah, let's let's bring that back. That's 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 what we're here to do. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Again, the book is White Shift, Populism, Immigration and the Future of White Majorities by Eric Kaufman, James Pugh, independent writer with Woke Watch Canada, WokeWatchCanada.com, WokeWatchCanada.com. James, thanks so much. We'll talk again next week. Awesome. See you then. Bye bye. All right. Coming up in Hour 2, David Millard Haskell is a professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. He'll be here. Uh, he researches and teaches media and cultural trends. And um, recently, uh, I guess it was an excerpt published in uh, the Western Standard uh, about 
uh, how Ontario teachers, he says, pick on white children. Kind of a theme show going on today. We'll uh, we'll get to David Millard Haskell coming up in hour two. Also, Randy Taylor, host of the brand new Randy Taylor Show, heard weekday mornings seven to nine here on Saga Nine Sixty. We'll be here. We'll uh, this will be a regular uh, feature every Monday, and uh, we'll talk about what's coming up on the Randy Taylor Show, and we'll also find out what's on Randy's mind these days. Looking forward to that. Kenny Shu will be here. He's the author of School of Woke, How Critical Race Theory Infiltrated American Schools and Why We Must Reclaim Them. Kenny previously published a book called An Inconvenient Minority, talking about the um, the racist, anti-Asian um, student admission policies at Ivy League schools, where they were excluding Asian Americans, even ones that were excelling in academics all in the name of uh, you know racial quotas. Too many Asian Americans were getting into uh, Harvard and Princeton and Yale and so forth. So that uh, battle, of course, went all the way up to the uh, Supreme Court. And thankfully, the Supreme Court got rid of racial quotas, got rid of affirmative action on the part of universities and their admission requirements and replaced it with uh, meritocracy. Now Kenny Hsu is uh, running for Congress after victories over the dreaded DEI programs, what I call um, discrimination, exclusion, and indoctrination. He'll be here. Last order of business. All right, hour two coming your way shortly. The Richard Serrett Show right here on Saga 960. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption. This is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. Meaning we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade of what man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting. Welcome to Hour 2 of The Richard Serrett Show. And if you missed Hour 1, you missed a lot, but don't despair. Still, plenty of great programming coming your way. Last order of business, Kenny Hsu will be here. He's got a new book out called School of Woke, How Critical Race Theory Infiltrated American Schools and Why We Must Reclaim Them. Previously, he wrote An Inconvenient Minority, and he was sort of forefront in that battle in the United States um, against the racist... Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. 
Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Uh, admission policies in uh, Ivy League schools where they were excluding Asian-Americans despite their high academic achievement uh, in order to, well, to pursue affirmative action and racial quotas. And of course, that went all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court stood up for meritocracy and struck down affirmative action in the uh, in uh, university and college admissions. Now, Kenny is uh, running for Congress, so he'll be here a little bit later. Randy Taylor, the host of our brand new morning show, The Randy Taylor Show, weekdays morning, 7 to 9, here on Saga 960. We'll be here with a, a look at the uh, week ahead on the morning show, and we'll find out what uh, Randy has top of mind these days. This has turned out to be a bit of a theme show. It wasn't intended to be so. It's just these stories keep coming at us on a daily basis, and so uh, these, you know, ultimately these programs sort of just tend to um, evolve as a, as kind of a thematic work in progress, if you will. We're going to talk about how Ontario teachers are picking on white children right now. David Millard Haskell, PhD, is a professor at Wilfrid Laurier University, where he researches and teaches media and cultural trends. And um, there was a piece in the Western Standard today. It's a uh, an adaptation of a chapter from the Aristotle Foundation's new book, The 1867 Project, Why Canada Should Be Cherished, Not Cancelled, edited by Mark Milkey, Mike Ramsey, and contributed files to uh, Dr. Haskell's chapter. Dr. Haskell, welcome to The Richard Serrett Show. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. First of all, I'm uh, very pleased to know that there is an 1867 project. Uh, in fact, I was um, mentioning that some time ago in, in uh, response, I guess, to uh, well, we had the 1619 project in the United States and people were saying we need a 1776 project there. And I, I thought at the time, likewise, we need an 1867 project here. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, the book is a collection of essays that uh, justifies the, the existing culture in Canada that doesn't apologize for our history. But, but better than that, Richard, it, it uh, gives the empirical evidence and the historical evidence to say that Canada should be celebrated and not canceled. And so my chapter is a little bit more about contemporary issues related to how critical race theory, which is really discrimination, racial discrimination, has worked its way back into our school system, both at the uh, elementary and high school levels, even into our universities. So one of the examples you give uh, in the Ontario curriculum that if a student is white, they're taught that their successes are not primarily achieved through personal effort, but are bestowed upon them because of the color of their skin. In other words, white privilege. How prevalent is this, this teaching in, in Ontario schools? Well, it's, uh, it, it's prevalent. Uh, let me put it this way. The, the teachers unions created a 
curriculum that was then sent to every teacher in Ontario to implement. And it was focused on white privilege and creating the notion that uh, white students, by virtue of their skin color, are oppressors and, and equally terrible students of color are perpetual victims without any agency. So the, the thing to remember about this whole toxic ideology is that it, it ruins everybody. Uh, if you are a student of color, you are taught by your teachers that your skin color is going to prevent success. And now, now that's problematic simply from a psych- psychological point of view, but it's just really bad empirically because the empirical evidence from Statistics Canada and numerous surveys shows that, in fact, people of color in Canada uh, are, are doing fabulously well. Right. And as you also mentioned in the uh, in the chapter, it, it leaves out the uh, well, what Ken- Kenny Shu writes about in his previous book, The Inconvenient Minority, which is uh, which is, you know, Asian um, Canadians of East Asian descent or in the United States, Asian Americans who are doing uh, exceedingly well. Um, based on all of various metrics, you know, uh, academics, uh, economic income and so forth, uh, they leave, they conveniently leave out Canadians of East Asian descent. Why is that? Well, it's because it debunks everything that they're saying. So the notion is that your skin color will hold you back in Canada. And that's simply not true. And as you've rightly pointed out, um, Canadians of East Asian and South Asian uh, heritage they have the highest incomes and highest educational attainment in Canada. And uh, in, in the United States, just in the last couple of years, Asian women now out-earn white men. So even if you said wanted to play the sexist card, even that doesn't apply in the U.S. now. And uh, as I say, it's a very inconvenient, and as you've said, a very inconvenient truth. And what they ignore is all the good evidence out there, Richard. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a sociologist, and so I look at cultural trends, as you say. And there was, um, I'll, give, I'll give your guests just a really massive study that was done. It was done in the UK in 2021, so it's still fresh. And what, what they did was they pulled together numerous social scientists from across the UK to study whether or not race was a factor in the educational and the career success of people. And they determined that it is the least of factors. But what was the factor? And this is, I think, what we need to be focused on. The thing that was fact was a huge factor was habits and home life. And uh, conservatives have been saying this for years. Yes. If you really want to make sure that someone succeeds Habits in home life are going to be the thing that does it. And by habits, it's, do they do homework? Um, are, are they practicing self-discipline in the home? Um, are they encouraging uh, responsibility? And home life also ties into the idea of having two parents at home. And, and if you look at those Canadians who do the best, and it is typically Asian Canadians, as we've already said, it's no surprise that they also have the highest levels of two-parent families and they also have the highest levels of homework. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, it's just a mountain of, of data it shows that uh, that's the ideal situation. Growing up in a, yeah. uh, in a home with two loving parents, a mother and a father, um, which is interesting because 
the proponents of critical race theory see that nuclear family as a um, as a symbol of oppression and colonialism. Well, it's it's their Marxist background. They they're taking that from Marx, who who really tried to destroy the nuclear family. And so that's already in their DNA. And so that just is uh, is moving ahead as as they march through the institutions. That's one of their raison d'etre, right? They, that's what they want to do. But um, I think people are waking up to that. We, we look at uh, this million-person march that's happening this Wednesday. Yes. And uh, parents are saying, you're not going to take away my right to be a parent. And I think that uh, the, the other side, those people who are promoting critical race theory in our schools or radical gender ideology, they've overplayed their hand. And I think so, too. There are, so. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, we see parents finally really taking a stand. Well, you mentioned um, the, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism Fair, and uh, which brings us around to the uh, the late Richard Biltzo, who was a member of FAIR. I, I, I spoke with. Yeah, him. a good friend of mine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, what a kind and gentle soul he was. Um, and what they did to him is just was horrific. Uh, and I hope someone is held to account for that. Uh, we'll take a quick time out. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about fair and other components of this uh, this odious, odious um, anti-racism, so-called indoctrination that's going on in our schools. David Millard Haskell, Ph.D. from Wilfrid Laurier University, stays with us back with more of the Richard Serrett Show right after these. Welcome back to the Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. And we are back with David Millard Haskell, Ph.D., professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. The book is The 1867 Project, Why Canada Should Be Cherished, Not Cancelled. And um, we're talking about one of the uh, the chapters in there dealing with, uh, well, anti-racism and um, how that has made its way into the curriculum, into Ontario schools and white children, white students really being targeted for this odious form of racism it's not a for it's just pure and simple racism it's not anti-racism it's pure and simple racism uh, another component of this uh is unconscious racial bias uh where uh children are taught if they're white even if they you know outwardly uh, or, uh you know don't believe they're racist they're on they have an unconscious racial bias uh, and that the best thing that they can do is basically shut up and sit down, uh, recuse themselves from any opportunities, and uh, just stay out of the conversation. Tell me some more about that. Well, as you were mentioning it, I was thinking to myself, yeah, but it's crap. Uh, what I mean is there's simply no empirical evidence to support it. Uh, there was a meta-analysis done in 2019, and it was published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, and it reviewed... 425, 426 studies that use the implicit association test, and, and that's the test that then is used to justify the claims about implicit bias. Well, what the researchers discovered was two things. One is that the correlation between implicit bias and, and discriminatory behavior is almost non-existent, which is to say anything that these tests tell you, any of these claims about implicit bias simply are not empirically true. And they also concluded that there's very little evidence that even if you change implicit bias, 
that a person's attitude will change. It's, there's nothing that happens. So all these claims about implicit bias, which then gets uh, trumpeted in classrooms and even in our military now, there, there's a, a, a racism problem that says that uh, we, we believe in implicit bias. Well, they might believe in it, but they've got no empirical support for it. So that's what I was thinking, Richard, just as you were mentioning it. And, and the other thing that comes to mind is there's a, an incredible trend here that almost everything that we're hearing related to anti-racism education, which you already very carefully outlined as being racist. The name says anti-racist, but it is truly racist. All the claims that they make, well, I'm, I'm not going to say all because maybe there's some I've missed, but the majority just have no empirical backing. Let, let me just uh, focus on the idea of white privilege for just a second. So white privilege, we're told, if it's taught to students, will make them less racist. Well, the evidence points directly in the opposite direction. There was a 2019 study. It was published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology General. And what it found was when you teach students about white privilege, it actually does not make them less racist toward people of color, but it does make them hate poor white people more. So it did nothing positive, but it did increase hostility toward poor whites. Now, uh, just in the last couple of years, there was a study, it was May, May of 2022, and it was published in Plus One, and the researcher was from University of Michigan, and they looked at white privilege again, seeing what effect does it have on students. And what they found was it actually shuts down conversations about race and it lowers support for racial harmony. And so people might be surprised to hear that what's being promoted in our classrooms was promoted by the teachers unions, by the way, they created that complete curriculum. It actually has no empirical basis for doing good, but it has been shown to do harm. And if you wanted to tie all that up with a ribbon, you can say that this is really what we see in, in basically all diversity and, and equity training. There was a huge meta-analysis uh, just done in 2021 by Elizabeth Paluck at uh, Princeton University, and she, she looked at the effect of diversity and equity training. And what she found in a study, uh, again, a meta-study of over 400 research papers, was that the effect is zero, doesn't do anything. But then, but then uh, Frank Dobbin at Harvard took a look at it, and he said, wait a minute, it, it's not just it doesn't do anything. There is a significant chance that it will make people more racist. That's diversity and equity training for you. You don't hear that. You don't hear that from our schools. Yeah, we should rename DEI as discrimination, exclusion, and um, indoctrination. Well, I think it's by design. I don't think the intent was to do good. I think that's what the left does. They sow chaos. They tear down. They destroy. That's what's at work here. Um, David, I have to ask you just as a quick aside here. Um, and I'm heartened to see, I mean, you're, you're, you're at Wilfrid Laurier. And when I think of Wilfrid Laurier, we think of, you know, Lindsay Shepard, who was the teaching assistant that was let go because she dared, you know, mention Jordan Peterson. Um, how are you being treated by your colleagues over there? I'm not a favorite son. <laughs> I'll, I'll put it that way. Uh, I am. I'm. I'm often at odds with my administration. And related to Lindsay, I, I was uh, one of the handful of professors that uh, stood by her. I, I actually ended up assisting her with her as a, a thesis advisor for her master's thesis when 
um, the people in her own, the professors in her own program were hesitant to work with her. So uh, it's it's a, a trial. Um, and you'd think that it wouldn't be because you'd think that uh, at a university, people would really be interested in both sides of an argument. And they certainly should be interested in empirical evidence, as I am. But uh, we're at a very strange time. Well, as you say, though, the um, the pendulum may be swinging back the other way. Every action has an opposite and equal reaction. And now we have, as you mentioned, FAIR, which was uh, the, the late Richard Biltko's. Oh, he was part of FAIR, Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. And there are opening chapters in every province uh, in Waterloo, which desperately needs FAIR, one of the worst school mm-hmm. boards in the country. Uh, there are other groups like Parents as First Educators and Blueprint for Canada. How do we get 1867 um, in, in the schools, the 1867 project in the schools? <laughs> Richard, that's a great question. And, and I'm not trying to be glib here, but I mean, in light of what just happened in the Peel School Board, where they basically removed anything from that had any semblance of historical accuracy from uh, from their collections, I, I'm wondering how do we just keep what's already there? Uh, so I, I'm I'm a little bit pessimistic on this front, and I think that the best thing that could happen in education uh, is to give parents choice. Agreed. And 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 anytime anytime you have a monopoly, um, it leads to a really bad product. And so when you have competition. It increases incentive to innovate and do better, and we need that. And I wish that Doug Ford were a conservative, and mm-hmm. I wish that uh, Stephen uh, Lecce were a conservative, because if they were, they would see the chaos that is now our public education system, and the first thing that they would do is begin giving parents their money back so that they can have choice in education. Agree. Agree. We're spending more per student than just about any jurisdiction in Canada. Let that $14,000 per student follow the student, not the, not the system and uh, school choice. The left loves choice in every area of life, except when it comes to schools. Funny thing that David Millard Haskell, Ph.D. Uh, from Wilfrid Laurier. And uh, the book is the 1867 Project. Why Canada should be cherished, not canceled. How do we get a copy? Well, it's on Amazon, uh, so that's probably a, a good way to do it. You could uh, contact uh, the Aristotle Foundation itself, but the Amazon is probably the easiest for uh, most of your listeners. David, thank you so much for your time. I hope you'll come back on again and discuss more. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Randy Taylor coming up next. Stay with us. The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Hey, welcome back. And uh, we're going to welcome once again the uh, host of the brand new Randy Taylor show heard weekday morning seven to nine right here on Saga 960. And this is now kind of a kind of a uh, regular uh, installment on this program. Every morning we're going to ch- or every Monday, rather, we're going to check in with Randy and uh, find out what's going on in his program and what's on his mind. Hey, Randy, how are you? Welcome back. I am excellent. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for having me on uh, on this wonderful uh, show again. I, actually, I think this is some kind of a cost cutting measure by management, but we'll <laughs> we'll, we'll try and uh, try and figure that out. But it's uh, I you know I'm getting a lot of comments from people saying, uh, "Wow, I, I listened to Richard's show. I have for a long time, and uh, it sounds good to have someone with you know with some common sense in the morning too." So tip of the hat yes. to you. Thank you. Uh, so how was week one? What do you 
give us a kind of a, a flavor or a sense of what uh, what you covered in week one. And we'll- yeah, it's uh, I mean, it, it's interesting because <laughs> I had been out of broadcasting for a while and, you know, you come back in and you think, well, am I you know, is there still enough to talk about? Am I still going to be able to find enough content to, you know, carry two hours and it's all talk and. You know, we'll just take calls from listeners and uh, pretty much, you know, very few guests having on. And once you crack that open, you know, and and you start to see this avalanche of nonsense coming at you, you know, then it becomes, what do I have time for? Exactly. You need a six hour show. Pretty much it. uh, You know, it would be exhausting to do that, but it's. I don't know. I think that, you know, one of the things I wanted to touch on and talk about tomorrow and I wanted to ask you about this is that it's really my sense that the mainstream media that you and I were, you know, that was us, that we were part of that, that their, you know, their job now is to just report whatever is said and and not question anything. And I don't think that they understand when they carry a story and it says, you know, Trudeau has announced that uh, he's got the fix for housing. And he's bringing in these rebates for uh, for new building projects. Housing is fixed. Check that box. And to the public, you know, they're, they're hearing sound bites and mainstream media is not taking anyone to task. It's shocking. No, they just uh, they exist to carry water, um, you know, for whoever's in power. Well, not for whomever's in power. It, primarily, uh, if the party in power is on the left and. I guess part of that has to do with uh, maybe what happened to J school somewhere along the line where where they're not trained to be journalists anymore. Now they're trained to be activists. And that's what they are. They're activists masquerading as as journalists. And I suppose, you know, um, even when you and I were uh, up the dial at another radio station, you know, probably the newsroom, I would say. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. 70, 80 percent were probably leaning left, but they kind of held it in check back then, their bias. I mean, we have bias. We all have biases. It's human nature. You can't separate yourself from from that. But they held it in check. And uh, why why they don't do that now? I guess, um, again, I, I would bl- I, I blame the 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 the, the J schools and the, and and it starts even before that now. I mean, it's just indoctrination uh, from K through grade 12 and beyond. And it's getting, you know, it's getting more than just a little bit concerning, I think, you know, in, in coming back to this and having a full week of it and, you know, doing, you know, doing all this prep for the show every day and, you know, talking to people in interviews and talking to listeners and everything. It really, you know, opens that door to and and not wanting to be alarmist, but it, it really feels like this country that the window is starting to close. And if people don't really wake up and take this seriously, I was on with. Greg Carrasco on Saturday, he was telling me about, 
you know, his life in Chile with, mm-hmm. you know, with with Pinochet and everything. And I said to him, I said, do you see what's happening in Canada now? Is that reflective? And does it worry you? And he said, a hundred percent. Don't think that losing your freedom happens in a day. Agreed. Right. So, yeah. I've had similar yeah. conversations with uh, older people from Eastern Europe who grew up under the, you know, communism and they see the warning signs as well. And uh, we have to start paying attention to those people because they're, they're the, they're, our, they're our canaries. You know, they're, 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 they're hip to all of the signs, the warning signs. I mean, you don't have to be a genius to see the warning signs now. I mean, it's all out in the open. They're so, and I say they, um, the left, they're, they're brazen about it. They're absolutely brazen about it because everything is going their way. They don't feel the need to, to hide, uh, anymore. And, and they know that they've got the, the, uh, the, the media in, in lockstep with them. So there's no, there's no, there's no being held to account anymore. If the media is yeah exactly that, I mean, if the media is not holding them to account, and I don't know what if you've been talking about this or how you you know what your position is on this. By the way, uh, before we do this, uh, we don't compare notes, right? This is just like an honest conversation. Yes. A couple of Canadians going, "What do you think?" Um, but the fact that you know Trudeau and Jugmeet Singh, who I think is one of the biggest you know political criminals in this country for propping up this government and, and forcing Canadians to, ha- to adopt policies we didn't vote for. But him and Trudeau are attacking the grocery companies, right, for, you know, for their gross profits. Go and look it up. I actually did my homework. The uh, the net profit of the groceries on a, of the groceries on one hundred billion dollars in sales, three point six percent. Yeah, it's a thin margin. It's a very so, thin. So margin. what you know, in your business, what are you making? You know, and then here's the prime minister who has raised spending. Read your money. Um, from 280 billion to 500 billion in eight years, and he's pointing the finger at Galen Weston. That's pretty rich. Yeah, that's the that's sort of the liberal mindset in a nutshell. So they inflate inflation. I mean, rising prices is a symptom. Inflation is inflating the money supply, which the liberals did, you know, to pay for all of their ridiculous programs, and they did so with uh, the you know the backing of the Bank of Canada, obviously. So they're also to blame. The governor, the uh, governor of the Bank of Canada. So they inflate the money supply. So the prices go up. Part of that also is the carbon tax. That, you know, the, add that into the... Uh, the it's 3%. I, yeah. I, I did my homework. It's 3% on food for the cost of the carbon tax. Right. So they introduce yeah. a tax, which causes food prices to go up. So what is the remedy for inflation? Another tax on grocery stores. That's all yeah. they can offer up. A tax, which causes another problem. So then let's tax it. It's like whack-a-mole. Just keep taxing, taxing. And the governor of the Bank of Canada has admitted that because of his consistent raising of interest rates that has driven up mortgage interest, that is now the number one contributor to uh, right to, to, to the price index. Yes. And it keeps going up. And he's admitted that it would be below 2% if they took mortgage interest out of the equation. And this is hurting Canadians horribly. The price of rent, the price of mortgages, that people are losing their homes and, and we're the frog in the pot sitting there waiting to boil. Right. Yep. Yeah. And um, every every other week, it's just uh, another Marie Antoinette moment with Justin Trudeau, uh, while Canadians are lining up for bread a la the Soviet Union in the 1980s. You know, he's staying in some luxurious seven star hotel somewhere. This guy just doesn't get it. Um, What's coming up on the program tomorrow, Randy? Uh, Tomorrow, the daycare is back in Parliament. Uh, And it took me, you know, five minutes of sitting down and watching 
the, the debates going on, the so-called debate going on in, in Parliament. And, you know, Polyev was going back and forth at, at, at Trudeau and, you know, taking him outside, you know, the, the, the shed. But then the bloc member stood up and said he asked six times. Um, we were promised $900 million uh, in a housing grant six months ago. Can you please tell me when we're getting the money? Six times Trudeau ducked the question and wouldn't. And I, I tell you, if it would have been me, I would have gone across the floor. Have you and heard? I would have grabbed him by the heard, throat and said, "Answer the damn question. Where's my money?" Have you heard a liberal cabinet minister answer one single no. question in the last? It is, it is a nine disgrace. Years? It's yeah. a disgrace. They it's, all got to go. They should stop calling a question period. Just call it dodge and weave period. Yeah. Randy Taylor, what uh, we can listen seven to nine, Monday to Friday, right here on Saga nine sixty. Uh, great talking to you. We'll do it all again next week. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. You too, Randy Taylor. All right. When we come back, Kenny Shu from the School of Woke, how critical race theory infiltrated American schools and why we must reclaim them. And he is now running for Congress. He joins me next. Stay with us. Just having a little chin wag on the Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 a.m. All right. Welcome back. Kenny Shu has been on the forefront for nearly a decade fighting against racist college and university admission admission policies in the United States. And of course, recently a big W and he can do a victory lap here on the program as well. A big W the Supreme court in the United States struck down affirmative action in uh, the uh, university college admission uh, policies and uh, reinstated meritocracy. In other words, academic achievement not the color of your skin. He is the author of School of Woke, How Critical Race Theory Infiltrated American Schools and Why We Must Reclaim Them. Previously, he's the author uh, of An Inconvenient Minority, President of Color Us United, and now he's announced he's running for Congress. Kenny, welcome. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. First of all, yes, congratulations on that Supreme Court victory. How do you feel? Uh, Elated. It's something that I've been campaigning for for the past five to six years of my life, uh, we want a race blind country. That's what we want. That's what Americans believe in. We don't believe in treatment on the basis of tribe or tongue. We believe in treatment on the basis of content of our character. And really by overturning Harvard's racist affirmative action admissions policy, which prefers people of a certain race who aren't Asian, uh, we are eliminating some of the last vestiges of truly institutional racism in our country. And um, I mean, you've been you were fighting sort of specifically against these race based policies at Harvard and UNC Medical School. Um, now you you're running for Congress because you want to to reinstate meritocracy, not just in terms of college and uh, admissions, but uh, in, in all levels of the federal government as well. That's right. It's something that Americans uniquely believe in. Actually, 75 percent of Americans say that they don't want race in the college admissions programs. And I'm pretty sure that that means they don't want race in any program. And as your congressman in North Carolina, I will be advocating for a return to a merit based society. I will be eliminating racial quotas in the government contracting and I, I will vow to restore and fix our public education system because we are teaching so much victimhood in our young people, and we need a restoration of that. Uh, despite that Supreme Court ruling, and we'll get back to your race uh, in, in sure. North Carolina, but despite that Supreme Court uh, race, I mean, a number of universities and colleges have admitted, uh, we're just going to keep doing what we were doing. How, do we, how, how does that get stopped? Is it going to take a lawsuit? 
Yeah, that's right. And that's why we need enforcement in the federal government level, because although the SCOTUS decision said you can't use race admissions, Harvard and UNC, actually not UNC, UNC has been very compliant, which has been good. But Harvard has started doing things like uh, use socioeconomic preferences, uh, eliminate standardized tests for admissions. They've, they've really promoted diversity, equity and inclusion. They're creating new majors now that are, that are designed for affirmative action graduates uh, to allow them into it. So but what I would do as one of my first acts in Congress, really, to enforce the students for fair admissions decision is I would require every university to release an anonymized sample of their demographic and SAT and GPA data so that we can actually see the enormous preferences that they're doing and we can actually put a stop to it and show that it's illegality. Uh, Kenny, you're running is it the second district in in uh, North Carolina, which is uh, kind of a heavily Democrat. How are you going to bust through? Well, the districts are going to be redistricted this year. And so they will be redistricted to be more Republican favoring. Um, I am running as a Republican. And so I, I think that in any light blue or purple district, my my message is going to resonate with a lot of independents because I think that they're very sick and tired of the Democrat run education system. Um, you have to run in a primary. Probably. Yeah. Do you know who your primary opponent is yet? Uh, I mean, it, do you have a lot of rhinos down there in North Carolina? Uh, right now, there are a few Wake County people around here who are looking to run. But the good good, good thing is that um, there's enough room for every for, for a lot of conservative Republicans in this area. We're a pretty large area, and we might be divided into three, almost four districts. So I think that there's going to be room for everyone. And you've got a newly uh, conservative Supreme Court there as well. So uh, That's right. North Carolina is is moving into um, they have a, like a supermajority there, don't they? Uh, re, um, Republican legislature, state and governor. Or am I is that another state I'm thinking about? That's right. So I think they'll be able to push. Uh, I think because of the conservative majority in the Supreme Court, um, we're not going to have the same shenanigans that we've had with our districts in the past, where basically if people who don't know the liberal Supreme Court in North Carolina basically said that our districts were racist which is kind of absurd, but they struck down a lot of our districts. And I think that um, they forced them to redraw them to benefit Democrats, basically. And so I think that the new Supreme Court is going to be better about that. Kenny Shu, author of School of Woke, How Critical Race Theory Infiltrated American Schools and Why We Must Reclaim Them, President of Colorist United, running in the 2nd District in North Carolina under the GOP banner for Congress. Back with more of our conversation right after these. Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. All right. Welcome back. A few minutes remain with Kenny Shu, one of America's most uh, relentless critics of critical race theory. The new book is School of Woke, How Critical Race Theory Infiltrated American Schools and Why We Must Reclaim Them. He's running for Congress in North Carolina's second district under the uh, GOP banner. And, of course, um, celebrating a big victory at the Supreme Court level when they struck down affirmative action when it came to university and college uh, admission uh, policies uh, and reinstituting meritocracy. He would like to take that ruling and and take it um, to the federal level and all federal government agencies. Uh, Would it be possible to um, also, I don't know, through either executive order or through um, a, a law piece of legislation uh, to also uh, ensure meritocracy in the private sector? 
That's right. And you can actually find out more about my campaign at KennyShoeForCongress.com. Forgot to mention that previously. But basically, uh, meritocracy in the private sector. Yes. Um, now, there's you can't there's more limited things that you can do from a government perspective. But certainly I will be your town advocate. I will be your public advocate. Um, I think, you know, for example, eliminating DEI bureaucracies and eliminating the federal incentives for DEI that we give um, right now, you know, our executive branch under Biden and Harris uh, and the DOJ is very much in line with the DEI agenda, meaning that companies that pledge fealty to so-called, quote unquote, diversity, equity and inclusion are likely to get treated um, better or nicer, more nicely than companies who don't. And I, I, I want to eliminate that politicization of justice, basically. Um, if we're, you know, um, you don't get to make compromises just because you're more diverse, you know, you don't get to have preferential treatment just because you're more diverse. So I think one of the incentives, the reason why you see so much DEI propagating in businesses is because businesses see that as a useful strategy towards courting the Biden-Harris administration. And I want to make it very clear that I'm going to keep accountability on the justice system when they veer into politicization tactics. There, 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 there do appear to be some promising signs uh, with regards to DEI. Uh, Larry Fink, uh, CEO of BlackRock, seems to be, I don't know, becoming a little more uh, ambiguous about the value of, of, of DEI. What are you hearing about that? I think that it shows that the tide, the public tide is turning against DEI because we're realizing what it means. Right. I think. During the Trump presidency and right after George Floyd, people assumed that if you wanted to help black Americans, you had to support DEI. But that's ended up not being the case. What happened is that a lot of uh, black Americans were promoted in our education system and in our workforce who are unqualified. And that doesn't hurt. That doesn't help black Americans. It hurts black Americans because everybody can see what's going on in a company when you have an unqualified hire and it's going to lower their reputation. It's going to lower the company's reputation. So instead of lowering the bar, we should be bringing people to reach the bar. And I think that that is especially true in the education system. If you truly want to help black Americans, you first need to fix the soaring racial achievement gap in our education system in math and reading that is facing black Americans. And that is not that is not given the attention that it deserves. Uh, have you seen any polling data vis-a-vis uh, African-Americans attitudes towards um, DEI and affirmative action? Yeah, African-Americans have actually been fairly opposed to racial preferences in college admissions. Um, they are the most in favor of racial preferences, but only by a very, very slight majority. It's like 51% to 49%. So there are a good number of African-Americans that say, yeah, I don't want to be treated like a victim. And I think if you ask the majority of African-Americans, you know, whether they want handouts or preferences dealt to them in the workplace, I think the majority of them would say no as well, because I think everybody wants fairness. We want to be treated fairly. We don't want to be, we don't want others to be promoted who are less qualified and skin color is a very, very poor proxy for someone's qualifications. And what about um, among Latinos? What's the polling look like there? Uh, Latinos also don't support affirmative action. A majority don't support race preferences in college admissions. Do you think you'll live long enough to see a, um, a colorblind society? I think that if there is any society in the entire world that could achieve a colorblind society, it is America. 
we have made the most progress in the entire rest of the world, world towards becoming a truly race-blind society. We have so much diversity, and but the key is to treat people irrespective of their background. That's what the American dream has always been about. That's why immigrants come to this country, not because they want handouts, but because they just want to be treated according to their hard work and their character. And that is a contrast to most of the nations in the world today, where you see a lot of tribalism in Africa, in Asia, even parts of Europe now that are not anglicized. Um, you see, you know, tribal and racial ethnic conflicts resurfacing. I don't want that to happen in America. And so that's why I'm going to fight so hard to restore a colorblind country and a colorblind meritocracy. Uh, how about how do we get CRT out of the schools? There's been a lot of talk. Uh, you know, Trump has toyed around with the idea of getting rid of the Department of Education. I know Vivek Ramaswamy, he would get rid of the Department of Education. Um, is there a role for the Department of Education, if only to, I don't know, um, ensure that CRT is taken out of the uh, the public schools and then they can get rid of the department? <laughs> Well, I think you're talking about two different issues. When people talk about CRT, they talk about two things. One, they're talking about the lowering of standards in education for certain racial groups. And then two, they're talking about the teaching of divisive curricula. So one, the lowering of standards. One thing that I want to do when I'm in Congress is I want to condition federal funding of schools on outcomes improvement. Um, you know, you can start at a low place. I understand that there are many schools right now that are starting in a low place. They're in inner cities with poor home lives. But if you if you don't if you fail to improve after a certain period, we should not be um, we should we should be incentivizing you to to really train up your teachers and principals to get students to where they need to go. That's what the state of Mississippi did. You were held back automatically after third grade if you didn't pass a mandatory literacy test. And as a result, they're the number one in math and reading for low income students. I think the second thing is the teaching of divisive curricula uh, and you know, as a congressman, I will be your public advocate because we have to teach the truth about our country. You know, we're not go. We are not a racist country. And, the you know, I think restoring civics education and restoring a education about the basic debates that the founding fathers had, even over slavery, even during that time, talking about the Civil War, the Emancipation Proclamation. Those are important things that all Americans need to learn about, not just because you know, it reduces the victimology narrative, but also because they're true. They're factually true. We as a nation, we've overcome a lot. And I think that that's why we're the best hope for the world. You need a 1776 project and we need uh, 1867 project here in Canada. Uh, Kenny, give us the um, the website for your campaign again. Yeah. So you can go to, if you would like to support me or help me in any way, sign up for you just to sign up to receive alerts about my campaign. Go to KennyShoeForCongress.com, KennyXU, like an X-ray, for Congress.com and buy my new book about CRT and education. It's called School of Woke. School of Woke. That's how you can find me. Kenny, great work. Congratulations. Good luck in the uh, campaign. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, that is it for me. My thanks to Jody and Jacob, and I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again, God willing. I'll speak with you at 4 p.m. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken. That 
That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you Tuesday afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.